Greetings. Welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Chuck Randolph, Ontic's Chief Security Officer. From 30 years as a military officer and over 25 transforming corporate security teams to function beyond their traditional roles, protection, risk management, and threat mitigation have been front and center throughout my career. This podcast series will explore the turbulent world of risk, security, and protective strategies through conversations with leaders and innovators in the field. Now, on to the discussion. Hi, I'm Chuck Randolph, and I'm here today with Dave Commandant, retired Vice President and Chief Security Officer of the Boeing Company. In this role, Dave was responsible for the company's global security and fire protection policies and procedures, site security, executive protection, supply chain and aviation security, structural and aircraft fire protection, and many other tasks. He's now the founder and president of DS Commandant Risk Management Services. Dave also serves on several company advisory boards and holds board leadership roles with several nonprofit organizations whose missions are to protect people globally, including Hostage US and the Security Foundation. Dave is also a strategic engagement advisor for the Office of Private Sector within the FBI. And in 2018, he was awarded the Director's Award for Exceptional Public Service by the FBI. Dave, welcome to Ontic's Protective Intelligence Podcast. Dave, we are in a state of, you know, if you look around and you listen to the news, anything happening, we're, we're seemingly in the state of perma-crisis. You know, something's happening, something's looming, whether it's financial, geopolitical, um, et cetera. And, you know, we could, we could have a side discussion on whether, you know, we actually are in a state of perma-crisis or it's just fueled by social media. But as I think about crisis in a boardroom, from your perspective and in, in your experience, I mean, how do you balance you know, conversations and connections in, in critical situations. You know, I, I think about multinational corporations that are, you know, both a corporation, but often seen as a billboard for whatever country they originate in. And often as the CSO, it's your job to come in and say, hey, look, we need to get to, we need to get to the issue. We need to start organizing people. We need to start understanding what's at stake here. I mean, you know, how, how in your experience have you handled that and, and what have you learned over, over time? Yeah, it's a really good question, Chuck, because I think to your point, um, you can debate whether it is a perma crisis or not. I, I personally believe it is for a variety of reasons. And so I think, you know, when you're in the kind of state that we're collectively in right now, the question comes down to how do you ingest all that information? how do you quantify what's really material to your company, to your people, to your products, um, and then come up with a strategy on, on how are you going to prioritize those and then take whatever steps necessary to mitigate that. And it, it sounds easy. You know, you put three or four steps down. It sounds like that's pretty simple to do, <laughs> but it's really, really hard to do that, right? Um, everybody has limited bandwidth and capability on their teams. I don't think I know anyone who has a limitless budget. And so you've got all these different disparate events going on around the world concurrently. Um, some have an impact, a direct um, impact on companies. Others have a more subtle impact on companies. And trying to figure out how they're interconnected, um, how they're completely separate, but collectively the overall impact to a company 
and the risks that those different crises present is a really hard thing to do. And I think probably one of the um, best ways to accomplish something like that is, first of all, acknowledge that it's going on, Mm -hmm. um, have that conversation with senior leadership in the corporation to get their perspective. Do they agree? Because if you're you're not aligned with that kind of thought process, then it gets a lot harder um, going forward. But assuming you are aligned, then the question is, What's the structure you put in place to ingest all this information, assess it, make a risk determination on the impacts for your company, and then what types of mitigation steps? Of those, what is the hardest? Um, I think it is the ingesting the information, Mm -hmm. disseminating it, and determining what's the risk to your company, especially if you've got limited resources, Mm -hmm. right? If you've got um, a large budget. And uh, I was blessed with a large budget in my former company. But but even with that, in the environment today, with what's happening both domestically and outside the borders of the U.S., you look at what's happening in Ukraine, you look what's happening in the Middle East, the spillover effects globally for just those two incidents, <clears throat> notwithstanding any um, any other types of natural disasters that might be occurring at this time, that's a lot of information to take in. Right. And that puts a lot of demand on somebody's team. And I think that's really kind of the hardest part is how do you do that? Um, do, you, you, do you do that with a tool? Do you do that with AI? Do you do that with a combination of a tool, AI, and, and people on your team? Um, what's, what's the best solution set for you? And I think that's the, uh, the area that each company's got to figure out what works best for them, what gives them the clearest picture possible in the um, shortest amount of time so that they can react where they need to react, monitor what they need to monitor. You know, it's interesting. I, I, lately, uh, I, back, I think when I first met you years ago, I, there was a book we had read then called Predictable Surprises. I think Bazerman and Watkins were the two authors. And I've been thinking about that juxtaposed over permacrisis lately, like thinking like what if you strip out the title, but you think about the type of incident that we're facing, are there things that, you know, I fear that organizations don't don't learn from the last uh, crisis and they go back to this like, you know, they go to a, a state of ill preparedness and then the crisis hits again and we're off, you know, fighting fires and doing things. I mean, how do you how do you post crisis, Dave, as a leader, make sure that we're not forgetting the lessons learned, we're staying at that, what we might say, low ready without overdoing it? Because then you have that, you know, that burnout of people, that overuse of resources that that may be untenable. I mean, how, how do we, you know, in a perma crisis, how do we stay in low ready and not burn out our, our organizations and people, I guess? I, I think your comment is spot on. And I think this is a, an incredibly um, timely topic right now. And let's use what we all went through just a couple of years ago in the pandemic and the amount of energy and effort that was expended globally to deal with that situation. And yet um, what has happened, and it's very clear, I've had this discussion with lots of colleagues, is this collective burnout on um, the pandemic. Well, the reality is, you know, the risk of biohazard and a bio um, incident in the future, it's not a matter of if, it's when. 
But the reality is so many people that were involved in the planning and the execution of that um, incident at their companies are retired Mm -hmm. in different roles or because of the size and scale and duration of the event, there really um, were not great after actions captured that will help the next team that has to face something like this mm-hmm. move forward. And I think that's just one example, unfortunately, that we do a great job lots of times in dealing with the immediacy of the incident, where we, um, whether it's through complacency or we just figure like, quote, we've got it, we've, we've just done this, we know how to do it again, we can replicate it immediately. The reality is you can't, because people leave, people retire, People take on different roles, leadership in the company changes, and all of those things that you thought you could easily start right back up again. um, The reality is, in many cases, you start from zero. I think of, um, I just read Dan Heath's book called uh, Upstream, and it's really about solving problems before they happen. And in uh, an interview, I listened to him about it. He said, hey, look, we we award first responders. And he was very quick to say, look, I, I also love first responders. He's like, but in a corporate setting or an organizational setting, no one re- rewards the the uh, the first identifiers or the people that get upstream of a problem say, hey, look, we've had this incident. There should be no reason we should have it again. Let's go get these lessons learned and collect them. I totally agree with you. We do a bad, well, we do a poor job of collecting lessons learned and then creating a reusable or creating a reusable process. So when Dave Commandant steps aside and Chuck Randolph walks in, I understand like from a continuity point of view, these are the sacrosanct things that I can't let fall. I may want to put some nuanced character around them, but I, you know, I, I think there's something to be said for red teaming for scenario building for tabletop uh in, in all of this what 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 are your thoughts around that I, I agree with you and i think um you know there are clearly companies that do that really well and there's there's sectors within uh the community that do that really well but it takes a lot of discipline and it takes resources to do that right um it's not a sexy thing to do <laughs> no it takes time energy and money to do it but the reality is those that are proactive in this space, those that, that push themselves to say, look, um, we're going to take the steps necessary to bring these people together on a frequent basis to talk about different things that could happen to us. We're going to exercise ourselves a little bit, and then we're going to capture the lessons from that exercise, and we're going to go make some changes now while we're in an environment where there is calm and there is capability versus um, what generally happens, and, and to your uh, earlier comment, kind of the lifeguard mentality, right? Where the lifeguard goes in, saves the drowning swimmer, when in fact, what should have happened is uh, the lifeguard should have alerted that swimmer before he or she ever went into the water. Hey, there's rip tide, there's higher surf. It's probably not safe for you to go in the mm-hmm. water today. Or if you do go in, you need to be an excellent swimmer. Yeah. And, and I think that analogy goes right back to the very beginning. These things are going to happen to us. It's not a matter of if, but when. And those that are forward thinking and looking for those strong undertoes and that high surf in advance of entering the water are the ones that are best prepared to either prevent it from even happening or knowing that if they do go in, they're well suited to deal with the challenge. Yeah. And Dave, in your career, I mean, have 
can you think of anything, not necessarily just to like the business point of view, but just maybe in institutionally or have there, you know, what were the big aha moments or those big critical moments that you really had to take a pause and said something? I mean, for me, I think nine eleven were like something massive is happening in those Pearl Harbor moments. I mean, anything that comes to mind to you? Uh, I think there are a couple things for us. Um, you know, as, as you grow as a multinational corporation and as you find those, um, those areas and, and countries in the world where they do something maybe better than you do, uh, they produce a product better than you do, they have a natural resource you don't have, and you start to put all your eggs in one basket, right? You start to uh, put all that capability mm. in a different place. You take that, uh, whether it's engineering talent or raw materials or software design, and you, um, you put that work someplace outside of maybe where it had originally begun. And then things change in the world, right? And you look at what happened in the Ukraine, mm -hmm. you look at um, uh, different situations around the globe where China is a great example, where people have put a lot of faith, energy, and investment, and then a circumstance changes. And it's not that you're caught off guard, but you're caught behind the rock yeah. in a hard spot at this point, right? You've, you've offshored or given away or sourced so much of the capability. And so I think one of the things I learned over the years was really the significant importance of business resiliency, business preparedness, and really thinking through the strategies that um, that you want to employ. And I, I know that there are many times that there were concerns that we raised about um, an area of the world or maybe even a company that we might have been thinking of doing business mm -hmm. with. And that was not necessarily always popular. It created uh, <laughs> conflict yes. from the perspective of a... The businesses may have wanted to go in one direction, but from a security perspective and and looking forward, you could kind of see a little bit over the horizon where this could be problematic. Not to say that we shouldn't engage or do business, but let's make sure that we have alternative capabilities, alternative sources. Yeah. And sometimes those discussions played out and um, they were fruitful. And other times, um, I think, they weren't maybe as listened to as they could have been. And that resulted in uh, challenges. Sure. When those situations changed, it, uh, it became a painful lesson learned. You know, that, that is, uh, that's a good observation because I can think of that in my own life, both in the military and in the corporate world where you've, you know, kind of raised the flag or if we're playing soccer or football, you know, we've thrown the yellow card, but you know, the, the game continues and then something happens and, you know, I, you know, I, and then how do you deal with it at that point as a leader? I mean, you don't want to run in and say, I told you so, na 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 boo boo. Cause you know, that's not going to, that's not going to work yeah. so well. So how do you use grace and as a security leader, when those moments happen, you're like, well, we kind of told you this was happening or do you just, you know, just accept that they probably know that you told them. So let's move on with what we have planned for a fix. Well, I think it depends on the situation, obviously. There are times where um, the same leadership that executed on the decision is still in place. Mm -hmm. And the I told you so doesn't necessarily resonate with them, especially at that particular moment. Uh, sometimes that leadership changes and it gives you a second opportunity to raise a concern 
and say, this was a prior decision. Um, here was our concern at that point. Here's our concern today. We think it's important that you take a look at it again. But it, at the end of the day, um, you got to deal with the issue at hand. And I think uh, Monday morning quarterbacking at that point doesn't really help anybody. Yeah. So to the extent that you can continue to, in the appropriate and respectful fashion with facts and data and taking the emotion out of it, present information that would help a leadership team, either the one that made the decision or a new one that comes into play, help them look at that situation and for, if nothing else, give them cause to pause yeah. and say, hmm, we made this decision three years ago because of X, all these things have changed. Do we still feel comfortable with that decision or do we want to, um, do we want to spread out our risk a little bit here? Let's do something a little bit different. Or they may feel completely comfortable with the situation and it's full speed ahead. At the end of the day, and, and Chuck, I know you would agree with this. Most of the time, security is not the risk owner. Agree. There are times where it's a security processor issue and we own the risk. But but the vast majority of time, it's it's the business units, it's the business itself that owns the risk. But I've always felt like it it was our job, my job, to make sure that our business partner was educated on the risks, that they understood um, what the mitigation steps were, and then they got to choose what they wanted to do or not do. And then it was my job and my organization's job after that to execute on that risk tolerance. Well, yeah, I think about it. Yeah, we as security leaders, we're enabling a decision. I mean, you know, like, look, we've identified a risk if the business line or the line of effort, line of business, however we look at it, says, we're moving forward. Well, okay, they've, you know, they've, uh, they've accepted risk and move on. I mean, for us also, I think as leaders sometimes, and it was, you know, Dave, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a passionate redhead, as you well know. And sometimes, you know, I, it took me a few times to realize like, look, I'm, I don't own this risk. Somebody else does. It's my job to enable a decision. If they choose something that I didn't think was the best course of action, well, great. We're going with their play and we have to make sure that we do our best to, you know, to mitigate or to enable mitigation around that. So, but that's a hard lesson, I think, especially for people younger in the industry to realize that, you know, you don't own that risk. I agree with you a hundred percent. And I, I think one of the things I used to share with my team all the time, especially those that might be a little bit newer in the profession and not necessarily understand the um, the politics and dynamics that exist within a corporation. Mm -hmm. It takes a little bit of time to kind of understand that. And the line I would always use is, our job is to say yes, but then followed with, and this is how. Absolutely. Um, so yes, we can do this, and this is how we can do it safely, or this is how we can do it appropriately. These are the steps necessary. Mm -hmm. Because if you're, um, if you're in that position and you're constantly saying no, um, you won't be in that position very long. It really is up to to those organizations, the security teams and leaders to find ways to enable the business, but do so in a safe manner. Absolutely. So that, that, that takes a little bit of time and seasoning to get to the point where you can offer those alternatives without automatically saying no on the service. And you're right to that point as well. And it should be underscored for those listening that, you know, again, our job isn't to say no, our job is to say, here's how you could do it. And here's what enables that. Hey, we want to go have a meeting, you know, you know, downtown Kabul. Sure. 
here's what we need to do to make sure that meeting will go off safely in the best manner. And then the decision then goes back to the business owner to, you know, to say, yes, we're going to do that. I do think, I think we could agree. There are some hard lines in the sand where you just might go in and say, Warren, we can't do that. I mean, either, yeah. you know, it's too risky or it's untenable or it's going to cost too much, but I, I think you're right. You still got to push. You have to take that monkey and pass it back to them and say, here's what it looks like, you know, own it or, or, or give it to me wholly. And, and I agree. And I think, and you would, you would, I, I would assume would agree with this also. The way to have those discussions go in your favor is to have built already that trust and credibility within the organization. Yeah. Um, so that when you come to a senior leader with a recommendation like that, that he or she, knows already you understand the business you have the business best interest in heart um you obviously are putting people safety above and beyond everything else and if you come forward with a recommendation to not do something that it's been thoroughly thought through there's data to support it and at the end of the day they really should listen to that and and i think that's one of the keys in any organization is building that trust and credibility with the leadership team of the company so that when recommendations like that are made, and sometimes they're unpopular recommendations, that if there's a gray area, that you're going to win the gray area because they know that you've put the time, energy, and thought into this, and it is the right decision. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you about the Ontix Center for Connected Intelligence. In the world of safety, security, and protection, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the Ontix Center for Connected Intelligence. The center is a hub for the ongoing exchange of security strategies and best practices, insights on current and past trends, and sharing valuable learnings through expert discussion and analysis. It's made up of seasoned experts with decades of experience across a wide range of disciplines. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co backslash center. You know, we often hear this you know, have a seat at the table and keep a seat at the table. And I actually of late, I've been thinking about a different version of that, which is just don't get kicked out of the room. First, get in the room, um, <laughs> but don't get kicked out of the room because that. at the end of the day, like, I don't know. And please, if, if you feel other, you know, school me on this, but I, I don't know that we always need to be at the table. I just need to be in the room. So if the, the, you know, the C-suite or the business owner, or whatever turns around, we're there for them. Um, I don't know. What do you? I, I'm still kind of formulating this idea in my mind, but I guess I'd ask two questions. There, one: Do you agree with that thought? And two: How do we, based on what you just said, how do we get in the room and stay in the room? Yeah, that's that's a great analogy. I, I love that. Um, I'm going to date myself <laughs> here, but it it kind of goes back to those old EF Hutton commercials and. <laughs> John Houseman was the actor, uh -huh. and he would say, well, you know, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. And that that's what I think you want as a security leader. As long as you're in the room and some discussion is going on, 
whether you're proactively called upon or you raise your hand and you say, I think we should do X and here's why. Mm -hmm. And the people listen to you. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be sit, sitting directly at the table. You can be along the wall. But your hope is that your brand and your reputation is such that some leader in that room sitting at the table is going to stop and say, I'd like to get Chuck's perspective on this before we move forward. Yeah. And, and have that opportunity to voice uh, the opinion of your organization. I, th I think that's important. And I, I love your analogy. Uh, you know, I worked for Norman Schwarzkopf early in my career. And I remember him telling his chief of staff once, son, every day you got about four paragraphs that you can speak. Think about that and use those paragraphs wisely. And I, I think yeah. about that even now, like in order to try to stay in the room. Um, something, I mean, I, I think I've seen you multiple times over the last few months, but we were recently, you and I and Fred were all at the uh, Sam Houston State Critical Infrastructure Conference that was being held by Scott McHugh. And a lot of that, I think they refer to it as gray zone tactics, but I, I guess I'm going to date myself here and say maybe I'd call that more hybrid warfare, which we know is a amalgamation of like physical risk and, and cyber risk. And this is something that I, I think that you've dealt with firsthand. You know, what, what's your thoughts around the new security leader that needs to understand both sides of the fence? Yeah, that was a great conference. And there were some really, really smart people there. I, I learned a lot yeah. listening to the narratives throughout the day. But I think at the end of the day, um, a security leader needs to be a business leader. And he or she, in addition to being, you know, a risk management professional, also needs to have tremendous business acumen and understand the risks and threats to the business at large. And, and the, the more non-traditional threats, the threats of <coughs> uh, near-peer adversaries mm -hmm. acquiring capabilities in the same space that you are, potentially procuring a uh, pieces of the supply chain that are critical to you that could be uh, at some point choked off if they felt that that was the appropriate thing to do for whatever reason. And so it's not just enough, I, I don't think anymore, to, um, to really be just that security practitioner and that expert, whether it's in cyber, physical security, um, intelligence, but you really do also need to understand the business and you need to be able to look across the business and outside of the business and understand and help identify those areas of risk or see what's happening in a particular space and be able to come back and say, this is a risk mm -hmm. to us. You know, we need A, B, and C to make our product. And B and C is now um, owned by and controlled by mm -hmm. Um, or heavily invested in uh, a competitor or by an adversarial nation. And if they chose to choke this off or slow it down, it has an immediate impact on our ability to produce product um, or to maintain our technical advantage. And, and that, I think, was we heard that time and time and time again during that day. And examples were given of where that's happening actively every single day. And I think those security leaders and those companies that have that full situational awareness and understand that um, and can make counter moves mm -hmm. to offset and mitigate some of those um, things that have occurred are well positioned for the future. Those that, that don't 
um, won't be prepared and unfortunately will likely suffer the consequences. Well, I think, like you said, it, it works on both sides of the fence, too. I think as a leader, our job is to be a bit of a generalist. We might have specialists or ICs that work within our, our various stacks, but our job is to understand the capabilities of the broader team, too. Like, you know, you're clearly a critical thinker in the idea of like, let's think broadly about this, where the issues are. And then as a leader, you know, if we think detect, deter, disrupt, defend, you know, where, where can we best affect this? And what do I need to bring to bear? I may not need to know how to run the terminal, or if I'm a cyber person, I may not need to know how to do protective surveillance, but I certainly need to understand the capable, the capabilities of computer network defense or, you know, protective yeah. surveillance uh, on an individual. So I can think broadly about, you know, those mitigation strategies. And I, I think you and I talked at the conference briefly. I mean, I, I think this is going to continue. We're going to continue to see the the nexus of physical cyber, you know, risk leaders. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's um, the convergence of the two. There's, you know, there's been discussion about this for years. The discussion is not no. new, but what I would say is the um, pace in which it's occurring has definitely um, ramped up significantly over the last three, four years in particular. Do you think there's a COVID effect to that, Dave? I, I don't mean like people had COVID, but you know what I mean? Like the effect of COVID on now more broad thinking, I guess. Um, I, I don't know if there's a correlation or not. I, I think probably where it, it happens is in the boardroom. Mm -hmm. And they look at that converged risk. Uh, I've, I've done a number of conversations about this, and I know you've got a lot of expertise in this space. It's, it's so difficult now to separate a cyber incident from a physical security incident mm -hmm. and vice versa because of how, um, how many tools we use on the security side yeah. and the impact of those tools. Uh, the example I gave recently is I was in Las Vegas earlier this summer when the MGM grant was going through their, um, oh, yeah. their ransomware incident. Yeah. And this was about three or four days into it. So it was still new and fresh when I was there. And to watch the impact that that cyber event was having on their physical security of their property, the one I was at, mm -hmm. was it was amazing. It was actually a case study. And I was intentional about spending time down in the lobby and out on the gaming floor, not to game, but just to watch what they had to do differently to still continue to um, provide a, a relatively normal guest experience and do that in a safe and secure manner. Yeah. And so um, I think that's the reason why we're seeing a lot of this, that CEOs are realizing that so much of their security is in different silos. And um, no matter how closely a CISO and CSO partner together, I think there's a feeling amongst a lot of CEOs that, hey, I've got a core and bundle this all up. I think there are cases to be made in some companies where that's the right thing to do. I think there are cases to be made where it's not the right thing to do. The size and scale of some of these roles when you converge them is so significant that I think ultimately the leader is set up to fail. Agree. Unless he or she has some just excellent, excellent talent below them that work well collaboratively across the two functions, it actually creates probably more risk than having it um, a bit divergent, yeah. but making sure that the CISO and CSO have 
a really strong working relationship. Well, we go back to that, just being in the room and recognizing the other security in crisis and risk leaders in the room and making sure, like you said early on, that we have a trust relationship built with them. You know, reach, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of if you're new in role, figure out who has similar roles to you, whether they have security attached to their name or not, and make sure that, that you befriend them so that in a crisis, it's not your first time meeting someone. Yeah, I agree 100%. Dave, you, you clearly, I mean, I've known you a long time, a bit of a mentor for me, and I've seen you like give back to the industry time and time again. And now, you know, as you, you know, as you're looking beyond being uh, in corporate America, now you have DS Commandant Risk Management. I mean, what's, what drives you to continue to be involved in the industry and to dedicate yourself to, you know, the professionalism of the practitioner and all that? Um, you know, Chuck, it's not much different than what got me into the profession in the very beginning. I, I can remember sitting in class at Cal State Long Beach in Southern California as a business major at the time. And no knock against business majors, but I just found it incredibly boring. And, uh, and I had the chance to, um, to take some different courses. And one of the courses I got to take was in the criminal justice arena. And I found it fascinating. And so at the end of the day, um, the reason I'm still uh, involved and engaged is the same reason I switched my major way back when, because I find this field fascinating. It is, uh, it changes every day. Mm -hmm. The challenges get greater. Um, there are wonderful people in this profession that are very mission and duty oriented, which mm -hmm. is appealing to me also. Um, I felt like every day that I was working for my former company, the Boeing company, when I got up and I looked myself in the mirror, getting ready to go into the office, that I felt like what our team did mattered, that it was keeping oh, our people safe, our information safe, our assets safe. And, you know, not every day is a great day in the office. Everybody knows that. But the... What we produced at that company, the people I got a chance to meet and to work with on a daily basis, energized me. And so when I um, had the opportunity to um, retire and, and then start my own business, I feel the same way. There are so many great people in this community, people like yourself yeah. and others, that it is energizing every day to remain engaged, help solve problems, be part of solutions. And, and that's why I still do it. And that's why I would encourage any young person. And I think this is an area as a profession where we need to do a better job is making sure young people, women, people of color understand that the security profession is a tremendous career path for you. And there's so many different things mm -hmm. you can go do, so many different opportunities. And we need to do a better job marketing this career. And I had some people early in mind that um, took a special interest in me. And so it's kind of one of those pay forward things. I, I had people that looked out for me. I would like to continue to try to help people get into this field and be successful in this field. That's outstanding. I, you know, Dave, I started my career after school, after college. I went to Ball State University in Indiana. And my first job was I lobbied for stricter insurance fraud laws for the state of Indiana. That lasted like eight months. And I was like, this is a fascinating and probably uh, needed thing, but not for me. Yeah, and immediately pivoted. So I, I, I can understand a, a young Dave Commandant going interesting, but man, I feel like there's something more out there. But you've you've taken clearly 
you've taken those business and, and that acumen and you've brought it with you and you've continued to hone that because I love what you say. You're like, look, our, we're in security, but we're business leaders who happen to be in security and risk. Uh, and I do think, I think we're on a cusp of a new wave of people coming into the industry that were born with a supercomputer in their hand. They understand things that you and I had to come to grips with, like data visualization, you know, adaptability. And so I personally am very excited about the new wave of people coming in. I appreciate the, the advice that you've given them. What would advice would you, or what would you recommend to folks? Who are coming in, maybe they're new leaders in the in the space and they're trying to figure out like how can I change? How can I maybe be more business forward without forgetting my security mantra? Any advice or books or, or anything you might give them? I think it's really important that if you're gonna be in a security organization, and we still face this in, in a lot of companies, is we don't do a good job telling our story. And mm-hmm. people in leadership understand uh, we've got security at the company and uh, I, I think it's important. We probably need to have it, but they don't really understand the why. So for, I think, young people coming into this profession, young leaders, people that are growing and it will ultimately lead security organizations, learning how to tell the organization's story through metrics, through, um, through data that is simple to understand that resonates with um, business peers and the people running the company is very important. And I learned that in about 2010, we put together a suite of what we called value metrics for our organization, one or two metrics for every service offering that we, um, that we provided to the corporation. And we honed those things down into literally a 25 to 30 second elevator speech on a one chart that was designed in a way where anyone would understand what the data was telling them. And Chuck, I have to tell you, I made more hay off those value metrics over the years in being able to Mm -hmm. tell our story um, and what we were doing, risks that were being avoided, return on investments that were being made. And I think that went a long way in building credibility that our organization was being run like a business. The business was security but it was being run just as well as the commercial airplane division or our supplier management organization or safety or whatever else in the company. And so for, yeah. you know, for folks coming up in this field, that is a real important factor. Um, you're right. A lot of the people running security organizations now did not come from the traditional security environment. They didn't come from the FBI or Secret Service or State Department. Um, they came as a homegrown corporate product. And the great thing is that mindset has already probably been ingrained into them. But if it hasn't, I think that's an area where I would tell anyone starting out is hone your business acumen, learn how to speak that language. Because when you're in a room full of people, that's what's going to resonate with them. If, if you're talking in a language that they don't understand, and sometimes security professionals do that. Um, yeah. It has a tendency to um, to create barriers, and you don't want those. You want to be, to your point early on in this conversation, you want to be in the room. You don't want to be outside guarding the door. You want to be in the room. Yeah, that's a great point because oftentimes we can get it caught up in our own microcultures of security and where I found over my own years, probably through uh, 
trial and error, like the words and the verbiage I was using that I thought made me sound like a cool individual um, was, in fact, probably hurting me a little bit just because it was not scaring, but putting a little edge to some things we were doing. And, you know, the the business leaders didn't want to tell me, like, we don't understand what you're saying because, you know, ego has a has a place there. So I realized that, hey, I, I just need to assume that they don't understand my language and I need to, I need to adapt to their language. So that, yeah. that's great advice, Dave. Um, how do, how do people follow you? Where's the best place to find you for those who probably, well, I'm not sure. I mean, you're very giving to the org. You're very giving to the industry, Dave, and very giving to individuals. But if there's somebody listening and they, they maybe aren't connected to you and they want to be, what's the best way for them to find you? Uh, LinkedIn is a great place to find me or www.commondot.com um, is my website and you can reach me through that also. Awesome. Well, Dave, I appreciate you taking time to come on Ontic's Protective Intelligence Podcast, my friend. Always a pleasure and I look forward to the next time. Hey, Chuck, I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you today. Um, love what you do. You make a difference in the security community, the uh, the folks that you have on and the topics you discuss. It's always interesting and I think it benefits everybody. So thanks for the opportunity and happy holidays to you and everybody else on the team. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co backslash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monteverde Ride, and it was written by Brian Bristow and performed by the Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.co or visit ontic.co backslash center for more information. Thanks for listening.